Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. The writer F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, Let me tell you about the very rich. They are different from you and me. That was almost a century ago, before the appearance of private jets. They cost millions to own, more to fly. They're a sky-high symbol of wealth. But now, thanks to a high school senior in Seattle, they can also be seen as a symbol of disrespect for the planet and the people who live on it. He wants you to know who owns these jets, how many emissions they're generating, and he wants them to consider doing things differently so they become a little less different from you and me. Later on, snow. I'm betting by this time, well into winter, a lot of you are pretty sick of seeing it piling up melting down or freezing into sheets of ice. Today, a reminder of just how important snow is to the way we live winter and summer, and what needs to happen as the annual amount of snowfall slides. Lots of listeners responded to our interview last week with the head of a company that wants to mine the seabed for minerals needed for the energy transition. Today, we hear from someone who has a different idea, park the demand for electric vehicles and the metals their batteries need. Long promised, years in the making, much debated, you'd think Ottawa would want to make a splash with its new plan to create sustainable jobs, part of a so-called just transition for those in traditional energy sector work. Instead, it was quietly released just before a long weekend. But we're on it, taking stock of the government's first attempt to confront this controversial question of how to help those who face losing their old jobs in a new world of renewable energy. Welcome to What on Earth? We bring you a world of climate solutions. I'm Laura Lynch. And we hear from a lot of people on this show taking action on climate change. And if there's one thing that I've learned from all of the stories we've heard, it's that no matter who you are, what you do, how old you are, there is a way for everyone to do something with climate in mind. For example, hi, my name is Akash Chandra. I'm a high school senior living in Seattle. I go to school over in Kirkland. Uh, I'm really interested in data science and math and physics. Akash is 17, and yes, he's interested in data science, math, and physics, and the fate of our planet. My generation is really interested in climate change, not just because it will affect the lives of our children, but because it's really going to affect our lives and we're already seeing the impacts. So a lot of my peers and friends uh, are definitely incorporating environmentalism into their own lives. I take the bus or bike to school every day, which takes like an hour instead of driving, which takes 20 minutes. And several of my friends carpool or do other small things that all add up to reduce their carbon footprint. So while Akash and his friends were taking the bus, biking and carpooling to get from here to there, 
he started thinking about the people zipping around the world in private jets. The Twitter account that tracks Elon Musk's flights had caught his eye, and he started to wonder about the carbon emissions caused by private jets. I was quite surprised, not just because the emissions were so high, but also just because I couldn't find that data elsewhere online. And I mean, it took me about a month to finish this project, so I was I was surprised to see that it wasn't already out there. Now that project that you heard him mention, he gathered publicly available information on the location of different planes owned by more than 150 ultra-rich people. And in some cases, they are entire families, such as the Murdoch family jets. He also looked up the carbon dioxide emissions caused by burning aviation fuel. But he had to hunt a little harder for another detail. One of the aspects that was more difficult was finding the emissions for each different jet model. And so to find that data, because it varies significantly from jet to jet, I had to reach out to a private company and request the data for educational purposes. They sent it to me, which was really nice of them. And yeah, that's, that's, that was one of the key data sources that I needed. Nice of them. He compiled everything he found on a website he built called climatejets.org. It lays out the estimated 2022 carbon emissions of private jets owned by people such as Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates, and at least one Canadian, comedian Jim Carrey. Now, we haven't verified the information on Akash's website, but we did reach out to a few of the well-known jet owners on his list. Unfortunately, Jim Carrey didn't respond to us. A spokesperson for Jeff Bezos replied to say he uses sustainable aviation fuel and offsets all carbon emissions from his flights. And a spokesperson for Bill Gates said he does the same and that he's also invested $2 billion to drive innovation in climate solutions. Akash says that's all great, but that he's aiming to draw attention to the wider issue of private jet use. I think the message of the website is not so much to focus on individual people as much as the sort of greater group. And I think the overall the overall idea is that, like, do people really need to be flying in private jets in this day and age? Even if they are offsetting their emissions, they could still be funding those mission offsets without taking those flights. As he and his classmates work to reduce their own carbon footprints, Akash wants to raise awareness about the disparity in emissions between the average person and the very wealthy. Americans are some of the highest emitters already. So my hope is that people know how much uh, the rich emit, and I hope that they uh, are inspired to take some action, be that what it what it is. I've been getting a lot of emails, uh, especially from other Seattleites, just like commending me for creating the website. And I've heard a lot of people involved in the climate movement sympathizing with the message. For Akash, the project has demonstrated the power of data analysis. He still wants to study physics after high school, but he's seen that breaking down complex data and laying it out in ways everyone can understand has an impact. It's something he'd like to do more of in the future. In the meantime, it has been a wild couple of weeks for the grade 12 student. A feature in the New York Times even called him the teenage private jet detective. I mean, it feels awesome. It's it's pretty crazy to me. If you told me a month ago that I'd be getting these requests or be in the New York Times, I would have thought you'd be crazy. So yeah, it's 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 feels great. 
Now, in case some of this sounds a bit familiar, another teenager named Jack Sweeney started using Twitter bots to track private flights of prominent people, including Elon Musk, a couple of years ago. And that's what caught Akash's eye. And in fact, he thanks Jack on his website. Because Akash used some of Jack's information and then added more of his own research for his website, climatejets.org. So it's winter in Canada, which means a lot of Canadians are obsessed with the snow. The mystery of it, the delight in it, and the fear of it, of course. But as we've discussed before on the show, the future of our winters is in question. Overall, climate change means Canada is getting less snow. And when we do get it, it's often more intense. Johanna Wagstaff, CBC meteorologist and the host of Planet Wonder, headed out to the side of a snow-capped mountain in the latest episode. It's probably been 20 years since I've been on skis. There you go. Nice job. You're in skis. All right. All right. (laughs) Joanna's here to share what she's learned about how people are planning for these growing snow extremes. Hi. Hi, Laura. Good for you. Thank you. You went to Strathcona Provincial Park on Vancouver Island to learn more, not only about the impacts of dwindling snow, but how scientists are keeping track of it all. That's right, yes. We went out to meet a research hydrologist who spends most of his job outside in the snow. But it turns out the best way to get to that fresh, untouched snow was with touring skis. And the best way isn't to take the chairlift to the top, you know, the easy way. It was uh, going to be a lot harder than I thought. Basically, we're going to cross over the cross-country ski track and we're going to aim towards an open meadow and then we'll end up in the forest. So. Okay. If I crash into you, I'm really sorry. I'll yep. get the hang of it later. <laughs> so I truly don't remember the last time I skied. I think I was nine. And on top of, you know, these skis that I had never really worn before with the, the skins underneath, I had these heavy rental boots, this 50, I'm sure it was 50 pounds avalanche backpack. <laughs> so I thought I looked really cool. I also didn't realize I was miked. So I was also very much out of breath. <laughs> Okay, awesome. That's probably, well, I won't say that that's the hardest, but if you can do that, you can do the rest. Amazing. Yeah. I had a good coach. (laughs) (laughs) You can hear it. I'm proud of you, (laughs) Joe. Thank you. I I gotta admit, I'm even, I'm also somewhat jealous. It sounds like it was just amazing. I want to know where you're actually going on this mm. big trek. But first, I want you to tell me why there is so much at stake when it comes to snow. Yes, it's it's such a, a big part of our landscape. You know, 65% of Canada's landmass is covered by snow for more than six months of the year. And there's a couple of implications. Uh, you know, snow is bright. So uh, a huge amount of the sunlight that hits the snow is reflected back into space instead of warming the earth. Snow is also like a giant blanket insulating the soil beneath that snowpack to sort of protect plants and animals from cold winter temperatures. So the loss of that snowpack has has big implications. And many parts of Canada also rely on that winter snowpack for drinking water. It's also vital for hydroelectric power generation, for winter sports like skiing, tourism, travel. And it's a key part of, of the way of life for many Indigenous people. Okay, but as we know, Arctic regions are warming faster mm-hmm. than the rest of the planet. But I'm wondering what kind of overall snow loss there's been in Canada as the planet is heated up. There's a couple different ways to look at snow. But if we look at the seasonal snow, so the snow that we get through the winter months that melt in the spring and the summer, we've already experienced a decrease in that snow accumulation by about 5 to 10 percent per decade since the 80s. And as you mentioned, that's on average for all of Canada. That rate is much higher uh, for the north. Wow, that is so much. Mm -hmm. Let's get back to Strathcona Park. You've gone on the skis 
with a snow hydrologist. I didn't know there was such a thing. What did he show you? Well, first of all, it was worth the hike, Laura, for the views alone. You know, we got to this big open space with with meadows of snow surrounded by these groves of forest, lichen and snow sort of decorated all the trees. It was really peaceful. So this is this is cool here, right? We can. This is actually beautiful here. As just a shot, we could show people how deep I love the snow that. is. So that's Bill Floyd. He's the research hydrologist who basically taught me how to ski, but also how to measure the snowpack because understanding how much we have and how much we are losing is crucial. So he looks after a huge swath of the coastal mountains for the BC government, uh, for research, and for Hakai, a research institution. So he started by showing me this big snow meter. This is a type of ruler. So... By driving this into the ground, you get a snow depth. The other thing is it's hollow. Yeah. And it collects a core and a core of snow. So you can take that core of snow, lift it out, and then you weigh it. Right. And then that weight tells you basically how heavy that water is, the mass of that water. And from that, you can figure out how much water is stored in the snowpack. Forecasting snow water equivalent for snow events is one of the hardest parts of my job. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I can maybe... Do you I'll... usually make bets before you measure <laughs> well, how deep we, it is? We know how deep it is. The bets are <laughs> the bets are usually like density, like how dense uh, is the snow, so how much does it weigh? I'm going to say that the density is probably like, I'll say 32%. Okay. I'm, I may be wrong. So I'm going to say, I'm gonna say uh, 52%. 52%, okay. And I can judge that too. That looks good. Okay. So gently into the snow. There you go. So you feel those layers as you're going down. Yeah, you do. Got a layer. Oh yeah, that's the uh, November 2022 20, <laughs> jump. <laughs> <laughs> I could actually feel the layers, Laura. It was really cool. The different consistencies in the snow was sort of like drilling backwards through time as I sort of wedged this stick into the snow downward. And I actually knew I hit the November snow dump because it was tough to push through. But that it was, was hard work. Yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. And it took us about 40 minutes to take one of these measurements. I mean, I was a newbie as well, but they take a long time. As for the density bet, Laura, I was pumped that I was bang on 52%. Oh, why am I not surprised? <laughs> what a pro. I chalk it up to, you know, uh, uh, beginner's luck, but also <laughs> meteorology. But with this kind of measuring, you really are only getting a snapshot of the snow depth and density at one point in the ground. And while you can calculate, you know, the average snow depth between points to get a bigger picture, there's a lot of variability we're missing. On the other hand, each measurement is highly accurate. Uh, so Canada has been using this method to measure our snowpacks for more than 100 years. I, I didn't know any of this. So, so that's what scientists are gleaning from meter stick measuring. But mm -hmm. but what other methods are there to round out those observations? Yeah, and they really do need other me methods. So one of them is weather stations. You know, they're, they're expensive, but you do get uh, a measurement of depth using sort of radar pulses. And uh, you can weigh it with with different machines. So we had one of those stations that we visited. Uh, but again, they're only, they're only points in time. But what you get with weather stations is continual measurement. The other big key is remote sensing using drones or planes. And Bill collaborates with a lot of other agencies, including the scientific research organization, Hakai Institute, to get the best big picture possible of our snow. Derek, thanks for meeting me on the slopes. 
My pleasure. Always uh, take a chance to get to the ski hill. I, I thought so. I thought you were going to maybe do a couple of runs after this. <laughs> Derek Heathfield is the geomorphologist with Hackeye. I'll let him explain how remote sensing of snow works. So Hackeye Institute has a mapping platform. We call it the Airborne Coastal Observatory. And that is essentially a plane with a series of mapping systems on board. And so the main, the main system that we use is a laser scanner, and it's, it's an active sensor, meaning it has its own source of, of energy, and it is emitting a pulse of energy to the ground, and there's targets on the ground that that pulse of energy reflects off of, comes back to the plane, and we can measure the two-way travel time of that pulse of energy and basically attach a range to it. So in, in great precision and accuracy, we're able to map in a cloud, the terrain below uh, the airplane. And Laura, he's actually talking about a physical cloud in the sky because this technology works even on an overcast day. And the technology works in tandem with what Bill and his team do on the ground. Uh, He has a great analogy for this. So it's like a television where if you turn it on, you're only looking at a couple pixels that turn on with uh, the field measurements. As soon as the Airborne Coastal Observatory is taking measurements, the whole TV lights up. Mm -hmm. So you need both. You need that remote sensing and you need the ground truthing with the meter stick. And the range that you do get from remote sensing really gives you that big picture. So Derek and Bill work together all the time. After interview, they went off skiing together. That's a a good job. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) All right. So there's all this data, but who's using it? Well, first of all, I was a little disappointed that Bill wasn't going to make the data we collected together (laughs) official. Nobody's going to use that exact snow data. We did well, though. But we did. We did. So the main people that use these data are, there's sort of three groups. You could look at BC Hydro as being one of them. We're actually in, not quite in a watershed that drains into Comox Lake where they use snow data Mm -hmm. to estimate how much water is going to be available for power in the spring. So that's one group that would use them. Another group would be the River Forecast Centre. So that's the team that... They have two different sort of, they look at floods, but they also look at low flows. So from a flood perspective, let's say we had a big event coming into the island, they use those data to give them an idea of how much snow is in the mountains. So these kinds of measurements about how much snow we have each season are crucial for the province's hydro authority, for predicting river activity, but also for avalanche forecasting and wildfire planning. So what trends is Bill seeing out there in the snow? I'm... I'm guessing because of climate change, it's not as straightforward as saying, oh, there's less snow every year. You're right. So, and this is something I see as a meteorologist. We are seeing that less snow overall trend, but sometimes the snow we do get is more intense because of climate change. And there are a bunch of reasons why climate change could sometimes mean more snow. You know, first of all, warming temperatures means our atmosphere holds more moisture. And the best temperature of snow is just below the freezing mark rather than much below. So some areas are seeing more intense bursts of snow as their temperatures sort of warm up to that sweet spot. And there's also a lot of new research connecting warming Arctic to wavy stuck jet streams and these events that can bring more snow and ice down to places that don't normally get it, like Texas. So Bill also talks about having to manage these very extremes, the droughts and the the big pulses, and it makes it challenging to plan for each season. Yeah, it sounds like it because less predictable snow means less predictable snow melt. Mm-hmm. So what needs to happen, I guess, to adapt to all that? That's the big question. So when it comes to the snow we need for drinking water, which is a big one, Bill says we need to know how much there is and then find ways to store it. So 
The only real solutions are is one, you have to know how much snow is out there. And right now with the methods I was showing you, we don't really know how much snow is out there. Um, so one key part of finding a solution is trying to figure out how much is there. How are you going to make up for that storage component? So dams, reservoirs, that's, that's essentially what the snowpack is. It's holding snow and delaying its, its release. So areas that already have reservoirs, they may need to think about building them bigger. You can also, of course, conservation, reduce water use, smart planning can be another solution. One of the best ways to adjust for less predictable snow is to increase the number and size of reservoirs in a watershed that can capture and hold on to that rainwater that can make up for less snow. He also said that we have had a lot of practice these past few years, unfortunately, when it comes to managing our, our snowmelt extremes, you know, from the big droughts to the atmospheric rivers. These are swings that will continue to happen more frequently. So other than cutting emissions to stop the worst of the warming, which is at the heart of all of this, mm -hmm. are there other solutions out there to actually keep snow? Well, I, I wonder if some other people might be wondering if snowmaking could be a solution. You know, at one point I thought maybe, maybe that could be a route, but like ski resorts do with their big snow cannons, it's not that easy. Ideal snowmaking requires very specific temperatures and low moisture. And as our climate warms, it is a more humid one. So that makes it more difficult, not to mention the footprint of trying to make that much snow. But, but there's another thing, the importance of land management in protecting the snow we do have. So Bill mentioned this solution that researchers in the U.S. are looking at, and it's trees. Forests can act like a shield for the snow, sort of providing that shade and the cooler temperatures, as well as protection from wind. And that all means a slower snowmelt. Snow will generally stay longer in a, in a permanent snowpack underneath forests. So they, they do play a really key role. And if you remove all of them on the landscape, whether that's through agriculture or, or forestry, and you do it at a high level, you will alter the hydrology. On the other hand, if the forest canopy is too dense, the snow can't actually get through to the snowpack below. So researchers are trying to understand the right way to manage forests to help protect the snow, to make sure the tree canopies let some snow in but provide that shelter to keep it. So further investigation sort of needed to get that balance of tree spacing right, but it is an, an area of active research. That's really interesting because I know from going on hikes in the winter mm -hmm. into the forest, then you go through areas that, where there's almost no snow on the ground because the trees are there. Exactly. So it's this balance of trying to, what, thin trees out to give enough? Yes, or creating little holes in some sections that, you know, the snow could get through, but then the canopy still protects. It is very interesting. It is. What a fascinating journey. Thank you for taking us along. And You're welcome. I, before you go, I have to ask you as a meteorologist, um, um, is are we going to get one more snowfall that my little puppy can go out and enjoy. I'm <laughs> yeah. asking this because you've met Mickey, my puppy, and he'd love to have some more snow to play in. Oh, my goodness, I know. And you're not the only person <laughs> to ask me this. So I think we've got one more before the season is done, Laura. La Nina is still here, but it's waning. So I would, I would count on one more. We'll love it. We'll freak out. I'll see you out there with Rodney and Mickey. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> you're welcome. And you can see Joe in the snow without her dog, Rodney, on the latest episode of Planet Wonder. Planet Wonder is on CBC News Explore, a free streaming channel. You can find it on CBC Gem at cbcnews.ca or on the CBC News app.
We've had a lot of response to our coverage of deep sea mining from last week's show. From activists to scientists and politicians, there's growing concern about proposals to suck up minerals from the depths of the ocean, minerals that are used in electric vehicles and solar panels. Vancouver-based The Metals Company is awaiting a decision from the International Seabed Authority about whether and how it can go ahead with a full-fledged mining operation in the waters between Hawaii and Mexico. Here's a part of my conversation with Jared Barron, the CEO of The Metals Company. The fact that we're not rushing into this, I think, is something that we should be pleased about. And yes, it's expected that by the end of this year, those regulations will be in place. And that will provide the framework for companies like ourselves who've been spending hundreds of millions of dollars to better understand the marine environment, to be able to lodge our application to move from exploration into an exploitation phase. And if that framework isn't agreed to with by this July so-called deadline, what will you do? Will you wait patiently until it is set in place, no matter how long it takes? What we want to see is progress. And I think that... Um, what does progress you know, mean to you? Progress means heading towards finalization of the exploitation regulations. If you don't get this set of regulations by July or by the end of the year, would you just go ahead anyway? Do you see you have that, that you might have the legal authority to do that? That's not our modus operandi. We see sufficient progress that we don't think that's going to be an eventuality. I just want to talk to you about what I've noticed um, in, in this sort of reaction to what your company wants to do. Um, a few years ago, your company was getting pretty positive reactions from people that, that appears to have been changing more recently with the protests, calls for a moratorium, scientists who have been critical of your plans. I'm, I'm wondering what that's been like for you. You seem to be riding high, and it seems to not be such an easy ride anymore. Look, I think that as you get closer to commercialization, then more people come out of the woodwork. Um, Why do you think that is? Same- Well, because I think activists tend to hunt in packs. That's part of my interview with Jared Barron, CEO of The Metals Company. You can catch the whole conversation. Just look for last week's show on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a fascinating story, and I'm not surprised you had a lot to say about it. Our story producer, Danielle Piper, is here to help us get through some of your emails. Danielle, hello. Hey, Laura. So what did our listeners have to say? So Alan Leighton writes, this guy is saying that the crazies are coming out of the woodwork and now we're protesting. He's full of it. We, the people, are just learning about this now. We need to protect the oceans, not mind them. And Gary McIsaac shared these thoughts. The deep sea mining proponents downplay the impact critical minerals recycling can play in the supply of these materials for electrification. I feel it would be very useful for What on Earth to produce a segment on the potential and risks of emerging critical minerals recycling and then contrast it with the significant unknowns and risks associated with deep sea mining. David Heinemann also emailed us. Here's part of what he wrote. Your interview of Jared Barron, the metals company CEO, reassured this investor in their venture. So thank you for having spoken to him. The problem remains that we have to extract at all. We eat too much. We drive too much. We do everything too much. Extraction will replace fossil fuels with e-fuels. 
but we will continue to consume the same, if not more, because no longer having to feel carbon guilt. Brett Hammerlindel sent us this note. I was disturbed by your guest's use of the word exploitation. It reflects old thinking on the environment. It's there to be exploited by men for wealth and pleasure. I am glad the company is doing environmental testing and has a public commitment to do the right thing. Time will show how that pans out. And here's part of an email from What on Earth listener Serena Tenay. We are exploiting the planet into extinction. The only way humanity will survive is to cut consumption and production by 60 to 80 percent and to lower our obscene expectations of quality and quantity of life and live with basics and essentials. I've done this in my own life. Replacing all personal vehicles with electric vehicles is ridiculous privilege and entitlement. We also heard from a University of Alberta political science professor who admits she listened to the interview three times. Lori Adkin writes, in part, He does something that I have observed repeatedly in my research on corporate strategies to weaken or bypass environmental regulation. He dismisses the scientific expertise of the experts who have cautioned that seabed mining, like dredging and trawling, may be devastating to ocean ecology and must be considered in conjunction with all of the other stresses on marine environments. She goes on to say that he repeatedly uses a lesser of evils argument. For example, that scooping nodules off the floor of a lifeless, no-plants oceanic zone cannot be more harmful than mining on land is. If we permit the latter, why not the former? The obvious answer to this question is that we need to do less of the mining on land and avoid the mining at sea, if at all possible. To do this, we need to reduce demand for the rare earth minerals. Wow, lots of thoughtful emails. Thanks for sharing them with us, Danielle. Thanks, Laura. And thanks to all of our listeners. You can always get in touch with us. Email us earth at cbc.ca. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Now, you just heard listener Laurie Adkins' call to reduce demand for mining. Well, my next guest has some solutions on that front. Thea Riofranco says a clean energy future can't just be about electric vehicles. It requires rethinking our reliance on cars. And that's because of an all-important mineral, lithium. Thea Riofrancos is the lead author of the new report, Achieving Zero Emissions with More Mobility and Less Mining. She's also a political science professor at Providence College in Rhode Island. Thea Riofrancos, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, before we launch into the report itself, I just wonder if you could talk to me and our listeners about exactly what lithium is. Lithium is kind of the the star of lithium-ion batteries, and lithium-ion batteries are the rechargeable batteries that we find in our laptops or cell phones, 
but also uh, in our electric vehicles, right? So these are rechargeable batteries that enable electric vehicles or electric buses to be charged with clean energy from the grid and then go about moving people around. All right. Now, your report outlines concerns with mining lithium. What are those concerns? Some of the concerns that we see in the lithium mine industry are impacts on water systems and watersheds. They are impacts on habitats and biodiversity. There are also social impacts where communities and indigenous peoples in particular are not always consulted or give their full consent prior to mining operations taking place. I'm wondering if you can give me an example of the impact of this mining on on one community. So some of the places that I've done research are, for example, Chile, which is the number two producer of lithium right after Australia for global markets. And that lithium comes from the Atacama Desert, which is the oldest but also the driest desert on Earth. And there have been major concerns at the community level, as well as among regulators in Chile, about the impact of lithium extraction on that very vulnerable watershed. Meanwhile, I'll just flag uh, that we see lithium expanding around the world uh, and a lot of governments interested in onshoring lithium and expanding lithium within their countries. This is happening in Canada right now, and it's also happening in the United States. Well, you're you're right. I mean, Canada just approved a new open pit lithium mine near James Bay um, and the Eastman Cree community in Quebec, and it faces resistance, from, including from Indigenous community members, but it's also promising more than 100 full-time jobs. I'm wondering how you address that tension that we, we've yeah. covered before between the lithium mining's environmental impacts and economic opportunities. One thing to keep in mind is that as economic sectors go, large-scale mining is not very labor-intensive. It's much more capital-intensive. What that means in simple terms is that machinery and technology does a lot of the work. I don't know if you've ever visited a large-scale kind of modern mine, uh, but when you do visit, you see lots of machines moving around. Some of them have humans in them. Some of them don't. It's not a lot of workers, right, per output. And that means that mining, you know, doesn't create a huge number of especially stable jobs over time. So often companies will say, we'll create 500 jobs or 1,000 or 100 or whatever it is. But, you know, the question is, how long do those jobs last and how good are those jobs? The other thing is, you know, what other economic opportunities are there? I think this claim of mining companies is unfortunately more, and understandably, I should say, more convincing in places where there aren't other economic opportunities. And people therefore feel more compelled, like, oh, this sounds great, I can get a job. But then the fine print is not always explained, which is, oh, well, this is a year-long contract position to just help us dig the initial pit. And after that, there may not be a huge amount of employment or these are lower level jobs and the the sort of technicians are being brought in from elsewhere, right? And so I think the unfortunate situation is mining often occurs in rural peripheries in sort of rural spaces where there is a lot of economic neglect and disinvestment and people feel trapped between no opportunity and this one potential opportunity that is sold to them. And I think it would be much better to think of a broader kind of economic plan for communities that have so often been left behind so that they don't feel compelled just on the basis of economic livelihood to accept, you know, whatever mining project comes their way. In Canada, there is a real push from the federal government to be a leader in mining these so-called critical minerals that include lithium. I just want you to listen to Canada's Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson speaking recently. We have to find ways to go more quickly. And that is why we are doing a lot of work internally around how do we actually accelerate our environmental assessment processes, our permitting processes. 
Uh, he says that they're still focused on respecting the environment and Indigenous rights. But what do you think about that kind of push to speed everything up? I want to say at the outset that I am extremely in favor and a lot of my advocacy and research and writing has been around the fact that we need a rapid energy transition. What I think is concerning is to conflate the speed at which a particular mine moves forward with climate action, right? You know, I think we need to disentangle those things and first ask the question of what does climate change require of us as a society? It requires a big change in not just the energy system, but a whole host of infrastructures and technologies and built environments that used to be all powered by fossil fuels and now need to be powered and kind of built in a different way. And what a lot of research shows is that it's actually not fastest in terms of addressing at least the transportation uh, sector's contribution to climate crisis to just replace every car with an EV. We do need to electrify the entire transportation sector, but there's a way to do so that involves not replicating the kind of car dependency of the U.S. and I would say a lot of Canada as well, right? This idea that you need to have a car and the only way to get around is to have a car. But lots of other research kind of shows that the fastest way to address the emissions from the transportation sector is to actually get people out of cars, maybe not completely, not entirely, but to address the issue of so many cars on the road in the first place. And then one other thing I'd note, which is when you just speed up an individual mine, that doesn't always result in faster mining. Why? Because when you speed up permitting, often mistakes are made, there are oversights, the work on the environmental impact assessments is a little bit shoddier. And we see actually that litigation and even protests can occur and then those further delay. All right, let's zero in on your report. You, you, you've you set out this, these scenarios uh, of what would happen with um, certain amounts of lithium developing into certain amounts of electric vehicles and what that right. means. Um, there was a worst case scenario, but your report describes another kind of future, one with less lithium. You already touched on that, but tell me what it looks like. Our worst case scenario is that people stay with their current car dependent habits, suburban sprawl continues unaffected. The same sort of percentage of Americans tend to own cars. And those cars get bigger and bigger. So we have more of those Ford Lightnings and E-Hummers and sort of electric SUVs that have these enormous batteries, right? That's our worst case scenario. Our best case scenario is we nudge Americans into taking transit, cycling, or biking. Not 100%. Still many people use EVs, but other people use these other ways of getting to work or getting to the grocery store. We make our suburban sprawl and urban, you know, sprawled out urban centers as well a little bit denser. We increase recycling and recovery to the sort of best levels that are technically possible. And we make battery sizes more in line with global averages rather than the gargantuan electric SUVs that are being produced for the U.S. market. That difference is 92%, meaning we would need 92% less lithium in the year 2050 to provide the battery materials for that best case scenario versus the worst case scenario. We don't think the best case scenario is immediately achievable, but it does, I think, give us a sense of the realm of possibility and then think about how to use policy and advocacy to bring us closer to that best case scenario and away from the worst case one. Well, there's two things about the best case scenario. Obviously, that means much less mining for lithium, which is what you're trying to point out. But the other thing it makes me think about is Americans, much like Canadians, love their cars. (laughs) How realistic do you think it is to actually move millions of people to living a different kind of life. We test another scenario. We actually test dozens of scenarios, right? There we have a whole range of hypothetical futures that we look at. 
And one of them keeps everyone in the current rates of car usage. So we have the same number, you know, percentage of people taking their trips in cars, same level of vehicle ownership, same suburban sprawl. So those big distances that people have to traverse, we don't change anything about car dependency. But what we do is bring the batteries more in line with global averages or with where the U.S. was a decade ago before the like the big luxury sedans and then the big E SUVs took off. Right. So all we do is make more rational battery sizes. And that in the year 2050 requires 42 percent less lithium than our worst case scenario. So we can even stay car dependent, but just not go down this road of the bigger and bigger car. And we could have m much less lithium demand needed, right? So that's important to keep in mind that there are a lot of different parameters and any of them can be pushed in a positive direction. When we go to car ownership and car use, there are more and more cities and states, especially in so-called blue cities and states, meaning where Democrats, uh, the Democratic Party is in power, that are starting to experiment with really progressive transit policies, right? Right. Um, and there are different reasons for that, including that millennials, which I happen to be an old millennial, but then also below me, Generation Z, is like less and less interested in car ownership, finds it expensive and unsustainable and all sorts of things, right? So even from a political angle, I think there's reasons to think about different types of transportation policies. And one thing that's been experimented with with some success is encouraging Americans to use e-bikes rather than EVs. And an e-bike can get you pretty far. It's, you know, it's electrified, right? So you don't have to like always be uh, pedaling uphill. And it's, it's, they're easier to use for that reason. Um, but they use much less lithium per person, right? So they're a real alternative to a car. And there have been cities and that have subsidized them and found that people will use them over cars if they have one. And they're now at the state level uh, in, in a few U.S. states, there are legislators can, legislatures considering also subsidizing them pretty massively. So these are, you know, types of changes that are already happening. What we're trying to say is that there's a critical minerals case for this, meaning if we want to reduce our vulnerability to these supply chains, as well as reduce the impact of mining, all the more reason to get folks into e-bikes and e-buses as much as possible. And there's also climate reason, because as I said, it'll actually cut emissions faster if we don't try to replicate the car-dependent transportation system as we move into a new energy system. And, you know, so I think that it's absolutely true at the federal level, especially with Republican control of Congress. I'm not like waiting with bated breath for a massive infusion of federal money into public transportation. But there is a lot of control at the city and state level around transit policies, as well as land use decisions and zoning and sprawl. And some of these levers can be pushed and there are already constituencies demanding them. So I, what I would like to see is to see the climate movement kind of as a whole think about transit and transportation policy and land use policy as some of those critical things we can advocate for as we're looking ahead to a zero emissions future. Thea Rio-Francos, thank you so much. Thanks for all your great questions. It is interesting to take what she's talking about um, and try to put it in more of a Canadian context with, with trying to overhaul the way people get around in cities. We do know that in Europe, for example, there are many more people who ride bicycles as an everyday way of getting around. There's been some efforts to do that in, in Canadian cities. I certainly know that there's been some effort here in Vancouver. But it's another thing entirely to overhaul it in such a way that you essentially are taking cars off the street and getting people out of their cars. It's a big challenge, and it certainly is thought-provoking. 
The federal government has a new plan to help Canadian workers transition to sustainable jobs. The future of fossil fuel workers has been a hot-button political issue, especially in Alberta. And the feds released this plan on an already jam-packed news day on a Friday before a long weekend. For more on this, we've reached Laura Cameron. She's with the International Institute for Sustainable Development, and she is in Winnipeg. Hello. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Tell me how satisfied you are with this new plan. We're really excited to see this plan from the federal government. Um, We know that they first made a commitment to work on uh, legislation to help support workers and communities through the energy transition back in 2019. And so um, we very much welcome this progress. Certainly there are some some details that we would still like to see forthcoming that are missing in the plan, but in general we see it as a really good step forward that includes a lot of important elements um, such as you know including workers, indigenous communities, employers at the table um, throughout the transition and um, throughout the sort of economic planning that goes hand in hand with charting our course for the future of a net zero economy in the country. This plan was released uh, with no advance notice on the Friday afternoon before a long weekend. <laughs> what message do you take from, from the timing of it? The timing is, is a bit strange. We do often see the, the federal government put out plans um, or announcements on, on Fridays. I can't really speak to what they're thinking there, but um, I do think that this plan is something that the federal government is proud of. We have heard, we've been um, in, in communication with the people who have been working on this plan for a number of months now. And I think that there's a lot of strong elements here that they should be proud to be putting forward. Now, there are 10 points to the plan. The first two are the creation of, of what the government is calling a sustainable jobs secretariat and a sustainable jobs partnership council. What would those bodies accomplish? Those bodies are really at, at the core of the plan. So the Secretariat and the Partnership Council will sort of work hand in hand to guide the, the overall governance of where, where we're going on this journey to net zero. Um, so the Secretariat would be sort of the government body that oversees um, the work and really, you know, d- d- gets it done. And then the Partnership Council is more of an advisory body, what they were previously calling the advisory body, um, and that will include um, more Indigenous governments, uh, labour um, representatives, and other affected community members and experts to help kind of steer the, the overall direction, make recommendations, much like the Net Zero Advisory Body does for the, the government's work on Net Zero Accountability Act. What, what is in the plan to support training for workers? Because I think that's what, what most of them are most concerned about, secretariats, councils, maybe not so much. Support for training, that's what they want to know about. Yes, yeah, exactly. That's sort of the nuts and bolts. We see the government committing to spending on programs um, like the Sustainable Jobs Training Centre, which was first announced in the fall economic statement, and in other sort of workforce, sectoral workforce development. What we're particularly excited to see is the principles that are, are following with those programs to really prioritize funding and opportunities for women and Indigenous communities and marginalized communities, people who have faced barriers to the to the labor market or who have been, you know, um, negatively impacted by our current fossil fuel economic development, um, they should be the ones sort of first in line for this transition planning. 
And for workers, what what kind of jobs can they expect to be going into? The This plan is sparse on details in that regard, but I think that's largely because, you know, the regional, the whole idea of the sustainable jobs planning and the, the regional tables on energy and resources, which is one of the bodies that the federal government is leaning on to do a lot of the planning, is that it is regionally driven. So, it depends on the workers and the industries of different regions as to which industries might need to grow, which ones will be shrinking, where the transition planning is needed, um, how the how workers' current skills translate or relate to the industries that we need to grow into the future. Um, and so it's there's not really a, you know a, a one size fits all approach or like an overall answer to what sort of jobs we're looking at it's going to depend a lot on the regions but you know in general we want we we hope to see that the regional bodies will be prioritizing jobs related to renewable energy and energy efficiency retrofitting buildings all of those types of jobs as well as other sort of if we think more broadly about the net zero economy that would include you know care jobs healthcare other low carbon sectors that are you know beyond beyond the traditional energy and resource sectors. Now, the government consulted on this plan for two years with the provinces and the territories, labor organizations, industry, indigenous people and others. How well do you think this reflects the perspectives of all of those groups? That's that's the sort of needle that the federal government has been aiming to thread here. And I think it is it's a very difficult job. I don't think the plan is perfect by any stretch. There are certainly gaps. Um, but, you know, we th- we see this as a really good first step. So we see that um, we've heard from our labor partners at the Canadian Labor Congress and others that they see this as really their demands for a worker-centered uh, transition are reflected in this document. And that's because of a lot of hard work that they have done working with the government over the last couple of years. And, you know, I can't speak to how well everyone, all the other communities' um, demands have been heard and represented in here. But I'm sure, you know, there's room for growth. And as we look forward to the upcoming sustainable jobs legislation, uh, we hope that, you know, any of those, the gaps that might be in this plan can be built upon and and um, addressed in that legislation and in, in the future revisions to the plan that will come in subsequent years. What are the gaps that you see? I think one of the gaps that we see is around Indigenous inclusion. So we've heard from Indigenous collaborators that they were really looking for recognition of the their rights, especially those within the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, to be included in this plan. And we don't see a lot of, of explicit recognition of those rights. Um, you know, there is a there is a section in the plan that relates to a specific funding for Indigenous programs and um, sort of benefit sharing agreements with Indigenous communities related to natural resource um, development. But I think it would be it would be strengthened to see specific processes that would allow Indigenous nations to, um, you know, converse and work directly with the federal government on their their own um, planning for the transition. And in general, and on the note of funding, we see that there there is you know a good start to funding and resources in this plan, but we're gonna need to see that investment scaled way up in order to, you know, for this work to match 
the timelines of our climate commitments and a 1.5 degree sort of pathway. I think the, you know, the, the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. has really, I think, lit a fire under Canada when it comes to climate action and has triggered our federal government to really kind of move forward, step on the gas, so to speak, um, when yes. it comes to Oops. investing. <laughs> step on, you know, that, that EV foot pedal. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, make the investments that we need to see. And it is going to be, you know, on a historic level, we need to see sort of unprecedented levels of investment. And this plan is, is taking us in the right direction. Now, you know, as well as I do, that discussions about just transition and sustainable jobs in this country have been fraught, especially in energy producing provinces. What do you see in the plan that, that, that could allay that tension? I think that, you know, the the plan we see is, I think it's framed in quite a positive way. And I hope that the regions and the provinces and territories will look at this plan and see the support that they're looking for, or at least a step in the right direction. You know, it's very, it's very early now, we'll wait to see how the provinces respond. But we hope that, you know, the, the training programs, the funding that's proposed, the processes of having these dialogues with workers, employers, regional governments, indigenous governments at the table will resonate with people across the country. And um, we'll look now to see, you know, how the federal government walks the walk, so to speak, for this plan. Laura Cameron, thank you so much. Thank you. Shortly after the plan was released, Alberta Premier Daniel Smith was asked for her reaction while she was speaking at a clean energy summit near Calgary. Have a listen. Well, first of all, at least they did a find and replace on the words just transition and took just transition almost completely out of the document. Because, yeah, because we all know what just transition means to the people who use it. It means they want to put a complete end to our oil and natural gas industry and completely phase out those jobs. So they heard us loud and clear on that. The, uh, the very disappointing part of it, though, was that they keep on mentioning their emissions reduction plan, which we know has the potential to be devastating to this province. And rest assured, we'll keep watching the story as we wait for the federal government's legislation. If you missed any of today's program, you can listen on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper and Zoe Yunker, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.